My view is that if you want your ideas, your policies, your worldview to be as robust as possible, the best thing you can do is talk to and have conversations with people that you fundamentally disagree with. Now in Britain, there's one problem with that for people on the left, and that is conservatives here, they're just not very interesting. They don't say very original, intelligent, informed things. There are a few exceptions, one of which is Peter Hitchens. Peter has been a correspondent with regards to trade unions. He was in Moscow for the collapse of the Soviet Union. He went to Washington. He's been an opinion writer with the Mail on Sunday for the best part of 20 years. He's written books on the abolition of Britain, so-called the phony victory and how the myth of the Second World War isn't all what it seems and on hugely controversial subjects such as education, capital punishment and divorce. Now, it's important to say we didn't agree about a great deal during this interview, but I still think it's hugely useful. The reason being that he tests the arguments and perspectives on the left relatively strongly, and you have to make your arguments. And by doing so, you refine them and make them all the stronger. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Peter Hitchens, welcome to Navarra Media. It's a pleasure so far. How are you doing? How do we find you on this uh, rather grim January afternoon? So far, so good. I'm living an extra time anyway, so I take every day as joy. It's a good attitude. Um, I'm going to start with a bit of a, I suppose, an esoteric question. You are something of a sort of go-to voice, it seems, for people like Owen Jones. We have you here on Navarro Media. We're quite interested in what you have to say. As a conservative, you often speak to Joe Media. Why do you think you occupy this almost unique niche of being somebody from the right who the left is quite interested in talking to? Must be because I'm so nice. Any, any other reasons? I can't or? think of any other reason. Sure, that's enough. But there's lots of nice people in the media, aren't there? There's, there's, no, no, there's lots so. of overly, like, dangerously nice people in the media. Ah, uh, well, you've got to watch out for the dangerously nice ones. So you just think you're just... They may not be as nice as they seem. I don't know, I entirely nice. agree. It must be it. I can't think of any other explanation, can you? But most people wouldn't say that you're nice. I mean, most <laughs> no, people, most, they wouldn't. Really. Most people would say you're sort of... Um, Horrible. I know you don't like the word iconoclasm because of the religious connotations, but an iconoclast. I don't think so. I, I, I think all these terms are ridiculous. They, they assume that there's some kind of motive beyond the obvious for what I do. I, I, I don't have one. I mean, I, I make a living out of scribbling. That's what I do. And I have done now for a very long time. I enjoy it. I find it uh, satisfying and pleasing and stimulating to the mind. And there are, uh, since so many more broadcasts and, and online media came into being, there are m more outlets of this kind, that's all. I'm sure it makes sense to people if people can write to assume they might be able to talk as well. Well, when I say you're an iconoclast, you do occupy an interesting ideological space in the, in the media landscape today. I think you, you say things and you make arguments in, in an often very persuasive way, which people just don't hear, particularly on the censor on the left. They might, they might if they read the Daily Mail, of course, but... Yes, but the thing is, it's, it's not because, because they don't hear them because I say them. It, 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 it's they don't hear them because other people aren't saying them. I can't really explain why there are so few people like me. I can guess, I can speculate, but it just happens to be the case that there aren't many people who take my position. Why do you think that is? I think I have a particularly unique set of experiences in my life. I, I was brought up in the 1950s, though really in the 1930s, for a world that didn't uh, exist anymore. That came to an end. Uh, I witnessed as, a, as an inquisitive uh, 
child and early teenager, the collapse of the old establishment amid the satire boom and the aftermath of Suez and the Profumo affair. You couldn't believe anymore in what I had been brought up to believe in after that. And I searched for something else. I found revolutionary socialism. I found that unsatisfactory, but it gave me a very useful training in, in real hard politics, realistic politics, not the soppy or public relations sort, which so many people encounter. And it wasn't a career, and I left it. And since then, there's been a great hole in my life left by the absence of an ideology, which I seek to fill fairly unsuccessfully. To this day, you're seeking to fill. You're still well, an ideological so traveler. Once you've had, once you, once your life has been driven by a, by a, a really seriously thought out worldview, if you lose that worldview, then th there is something missing in which you, in my case, certainly you feel you feel the need to replace. And it's extraordinary how it was almost mystical the, the, the belief that I had and the force, power, and necessity of uh, of the socialist revolution when I was doing that. But aren't there millions of people like that? So people that grew up in the 50s. I mean, my mother was born, she's now passed away. She was born in 1955. She was raised um, in Aldershot. So the, the- Yeah, I know what you mean. You know, her, the, her mother married a different chap. And so she was raised effectively in a sort of, not military family, but you know, her father wasn't in the military, but that was the, the world that she was raised yeah. in. Still very much an imperial power. She would say things to me, even when I was growing up in the 1980s, which were clearly an afterthought or almost an echo of the 50s, you know, say quite socially conservative things, which in the 2020s you no longer hear. But there are millions of people like that, aren't there, that, that lived through those experiences and maybe dallied with various ideologies. Well, they're, not in the, they're not in the trade of journalism in that case. They're, they're elsewhere. Perhaps the, it's simply that I'm one of the few who came into the trade. I'm an unlikely journalist. It wasn't, I wanted to be a destroyer captain when I was a child. Uh, journalism came as very much the second choice and something which I did with some um, trepidation and reluctance. And in many cases, I wasn't very good at it. And my first few years in Fleet Street were a series of humiliations and setbacks, which it still makes me wince to think of. Uh, but it, on the other hand, it, it had compensations when I eventually got to the point uh, where I was able to write what I really wanted to do, which was the sort of, um, the sort of commentary and opinion writing, which informed by reporting, which is what I do now, uh, then that was so immensely satisfying that it makes all the setbacks of the past seem trivial, but they were definitely there. Also, I, I love being at home. I don't, I don't really like setting out on long journeys or, or flying, and yet I found myself for several years of my life just doing almost nothing else but flying to exotic foreign parts. I was the most unlikely and inappropriate person to be living abroad. It's a curious experience. You, you, this may make sense to you and it may not. I live in Oxford and have for a very long time, on and off. And I went in June of 1990 to go and live in Moscow. And I came back very briefly in the late summer of that year to sort out some personal things before going back out to Moscow. And I was approached in Oxford, as you often are if you live there, by people asking for directions. And I gave them extremely good directions. Uh, and they said, oh, you seem to know your way around here. Do you live here? And I said, no, I live in Moscow. Uh, because it was true, and, and also I felt the need to say it, and I felt a sort of betrayal. Why living living in Moscow? I thought there was something something uh, actually almost disloyal about doing such a thing. I, I wouldn't feel that now, but it was a, it was a great wrench. I'm a domestic person. 
So you must I'm be thinking. Not a great traveller. You're a work, you work from home evangelist, then. No, I hate it. But you, you just said you like home. I like home. Yes, but home is home is all the better if you take an interlude away from it in the day and come back to it. You can't come home if you haven't been away from it. Do you think work from home is a bad thing then? For me, it is. I think for some people it might be good, but for me, it never has been. I had to do it. In fact, when interestingly, when I worked in Moscow and Washington DC, I had to work from home. There wasn't no one was going to pay for us to have an office as well as a as well as a place to live. And I was never really at home, and I was never really at work. I thought it was unsatisfactory. It seemed attractive when I first thought of it, but quickly in practice, I found it wasn't. You were Trotskyist for quite a long time, weren't you? Seven years. I joined what was then the International Socialist, I am sure of this, in 1968. And I left by sending a letter of resignation to the uh, chair person, chair of the journalism fraction in 1975. So yeah, seven, seven years of that, and then some time of sort of drifting. Is, is there anything that you, you learned during that period from the Marxist tradition, which you, you still kind of agree with, perspectives or particular theories? Look, I've never disagreed with the, the, the fundamental point that one seeks in life to improve the lot of other people. And that's what we most deeply set out to do. That was the driving force beneath it. What it the reason why I abandoned it was because it, it obviously wasn't going to achieve that. But that's a renunciation, perhaps, of the organisation more than the ideology. No, no, it isn't. It's a renunciation of the ideology. So, explain to me what what was the what does that look like between sixty and seventy five? You embrace an ideology, and then you you recognise it no longer works. What was the what well, was the catalyst? First, first of all, what the, the form that the Trotskyism took when I joined was very much uh, an attempt to, to to turn the the working class into a revolutionary force uh, through the actions of some sort of vanguard party. And at the time, there was an awful lot of industrial trouble. It makes today's look tiny. And we, seemed, we, we, we got the impression that we might actually have some influence. I spent a lot of time when I was a Trotskyist uh, talking to and running discussion groups of, um, in Oxford, Dustman from the, 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 the council refuse depot, in, in Scarborough, a group of workers that had coached uh, building factory up there. Um, the the Oxford International Socialists had quite good contacts within some of the uh, some parts of the, the car plants there. We were not we, we, we were students, most of us, and we had all the defects of students. But we were tempered and educated by the fact that we also had quite intense contacts with the people we thought were going to change the world. And it seemed real at the time; it really did. Uh, and it was only when I went to work on my own account to earn my own wage and to, and to set out on my own career that, uh, that I began to see that this was a fantasy. What of it was a fantasy? Because you, the world I, I, wasn't the world wasn't as we imagined. Uh, I, I assumed, uh, apart from anything else, a, a level of what you might call class consciousness among the rulers of the country that they didn't have. I assumed uh, forms of, of malice and a desire to repress and a hostility towards Lucy, which didn't exist. I had to spend a lot of time when I first went to work for the Swindon Evening Advertiser talking to police officers, firemen, going and reporting on flower shows and talking to people on their golden weddings. And I had, therefore, I couldn't live any longer in the curious sort of spaceship, which the University of York had been where I'd been for the previous three years. I was, I was forced into the company of, of normal human beings. 
And it was plain to me, first of all, that normal human beings, even if they were Tory councillors, didn't possess the the malicious and repressive instincts I'd attributed to them. And it was also obvious to me that uh, revolutionaries were, and I was reading a lot of Arthur Kersler at the time, uh, that revolutionaries were often people who uh, set out to reform the world but would have been better occupied reforming themselves. Uh, it was a point he made, it's a particular novel of his, a minor novel, largely forgotten now, called Arrival and Departure, in which this point is very strongly made. And I, I wrote about that time and I thought, yes, there is a lot to this. So two forces. One, the feeling that the, the, the revolutionary impulse was, was fundamentally ridiculous and reflected an inadequacy in myself. And secondly, the feeling that the, the world was not as I believed it to be. So that's the Trotskyist element, but I wonder more the Marxist element. So for instance- Are they separate? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, there are many. Well, look at Stalin, for one, would certainly would, would have said as much. Um, well, I think they both have they both have accepted some sort of uh, of, of common root in Marxism. Sure, but I mean, Trotskyism is a, is a, Trotskyism is a revolutionary, a particular revolutionary theory of change, and obviously, it's an outgrowth of Marxism. But I suppose you could, you know, there are people that work in the city of London who are, are relatively familiar with the, the works of Marx, and they might read political economists from the Marxist tradition, and they make their decisions in terms of market trading on, on sort of Marx's precepts. So I wonder, is there anything that you've still sort of learnt from that, like the labour theory of value, historical materialism? Well, I mean, I, I, it seemed to me, from what I could gather, I'm not an economist, but it seemed to me what I gather of it, that, that much of what Marx has said about economics and things such as the labour theory of value had been shown to be pretty much invalid. And the, the, the theory of um, Im, Im, immiseration, I think it was, where inevitably capitalism would force the, the living standards of the proletariat downwards and downwards, have been demonstrably shown to be false uh, during the, 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 almost all of the 20th century. It wasn't true. That didn't work. Uh, but that didn't matter because what we, we really were, we were Leninists. We thought the political power could still be used to create a more equal, fair, just uh, society, a utopia, and that the mistakes of the Russian Revolution had been avoidable mistakes, which uh, which Trotsky represented a uh, a denunciation of those mistakes in a different path. And this is, as far as I'm concerned, now is complete self deluding falsehood. But it's what I thought at the time. So, for, so for instance, the Marxists would say, <clears throat> "2007 crisis happens." I think a Marxist or a Keynesian, for that matter, would have a particular perspective on that crisis, and actually. Those kinds of people, looking back at them now, had the best read on what would happen over the preceding 15 years. They would have said, the growth model we just have relied on for 20 years has disappeared. Um, we're going to need a new growth model. And we're looking at basically stagnating living standards and, and wages uh, interminably until we arrive at a new growth model. So a Marxist would have arrived at that kind of conclusion, whereas a sort of a regular liberal economist said, don't worry, almost as a well, act of faith, there'll be some more growth next surely year. Surely there are non-Marxist economists who've managed to reach intelligent Of course there are. These things. It wouldn't, wouldn't, it, Marxism has no exclusive handle on being critical of the way the system works or a warning against the sort of things that can and do go wrong with it. But I mean, the, the, so it's not. It doesn't. If, if, if it doesn't have that exclusive handle, then why, why bother with the rest of the whole whole removal van of, of of stuff which comes with it that you have to take on if you if you subscribe to Marxism? There are other non-Marxist people who can offer a perfectly intelligent critique of the operation of capitalism, which doesn't require uh, the creation of a, of, a, of, a, of an insane, blood-stained utopia to do I mean, with it. So my read on this is, for instance, even Marx when he writes. Capital, you know, he's he's taking ideas from Ricardo, from Smith, and so it, it seems strange to me to not be able to do the same thing with Marx. Say, or with any intellectual figure, quite frankly, 
okay, this makes sense. Oh, this is clearly something which was something of an intellectual discovery, which led to subsequent discoveries, which actually illuminate certain problems yeah, in society. Can make discoveries, which are discoveries of, of intelligence and, and research and, and clear thought, which don't necessarily uh, represent a triumph for the ideology they happen to have embraced. That's the only point I'm making here. After this, you were an industrial correspondent during the 1970s. I was an industrial correspondent, yes. How was that? I mean, what an amazing time to be an industrial correspondent. It was. Interesting. It was. It was, it was, it was I've <clears> written <throat> about it. It was hilarious, uh, quite frightening, uh, enthralling, uh, totally absorbing. It took over my life for several years. I did almost nothing else. Uh, but uh, the phone would ring in the middle of the night. I won't say most nights, but an awful lot of nights because I'd been scooped by somebody else. So I had to try to get my revenge and scoop them back. Uh, we spent an awful lot of time once again and and, and listened to me with my plummy vowels. Uh, we spent an awful lot of time with with, uh, with trade unionists and we had to get to know them. And in many cases, we we liked them. And in some cases, they liked us back because they knew that at least we they had somebody in Fleet Street, which was then immensely important, who understood what it was they were on about. It was very educational. And, and the media, the way it covers industrial action today, what's your what's your view on that, given your history I in the industry? Think, well, I would say this, wouldn't I? You, you, I, th I think there have not been uh, more than a couple of specialist labour industrial correspondents in the media for some time. I think the amount of experience and knowledge uh, of the uh, that we used to have has dissipated. I'd also say that journalism has become much more of a graduate profession. I was quite rare in being a graduate, particularly at the the naughty end of Fleet Street uh, in those days. And an awful lot of the people who covered it in in, in the seventies and early eighties were people who'd come up through the grammar school system, who who were themselves people who might well have been trade unionists and were in fact active in the National Union of Journalists for what that was worth at the same time. So they 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 were the same sort of people uh, who could instantly see and appreciate the argument. Even if you don't agree with it, you could see what was going on. I think at the moment there's often a, a misunderstanding of the fact that there is there is gen generally a case. Point I always make to conservative friends of mine is you can't be properly conservative and hostile to independent trade unionism and freedom to strike, if you also regard Leifar Wenzel's great strike in, in Gdansk in 1980 as being, as it was, one of the greatest events in modern history. You've got, you can't have it both ways. Either this is an important part of the liberty of, of man or it isn't. And if it is, you have to put up with it when it, uh, when it stands up against you. So trade unions are an important part of a fair, a vital, decent society. I think a completely vital part of, 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 of freedom is, is the key thing, the key objective uh, for me and in, in my political objectives. The, the, the restraints on the absolute power of the state, restraints on the overweening power of any part of society seem to me to be what keep us free. And adversarial systems, adversarial parliament, adversarial courtrooms, adversarial media, and indeed and some measure of adversarial struggle in, in, in industry as well. These keep us free. They're important for that alone. I always quote this, Richard Neville, the great, um, uh, I, I think great for this, uh, the, the, the editor of the once infamous Oz magazine, uh, said in the 1960s that there is an inch of difference, which was true in those days, there's an inch of difference between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, but it is within that inch that we all live. And I think the closing of that inch in the past 30 years has demonstrated absolutely how right he was. We're much less free than we were when the, the, two, the two parties were more antagonistic than they are now.
Why do you think so few conservatives agree with you about the, the, the necessity of trade unions for a free society? Well, I think a lot of conservatives don't think. Uh, if, if more people thought, more people would agree with me. I, I, that's a simple rule. I don't. I, it doesn't embarrass me to say people don't think. The education system uh, and the experiences of their lives have not taught people how to think. They have, as I say to the point of tedium, they've taught people what to think. People who join the Conservative Party now join the Conservative Party out of political ambition and they learn very quickly that the route to office and promotion and preferment is conformism. Why would you blame the education system and not the media? I think because I, I think most no, people I, would. I blame probably... the education system because the education system was 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 fundamentally and stupidly changed, and it was by and large a, a, as a result of the quarrel within the left. And it, at the time was when it was reversible. I don't think it is now, uh, but I've spent a lot of time looking at it. I've just published a book on the subject, and I think it's one of the, the key moments of post-war British history. When we destroyed that part of our education system, which which created a thinking uh, potentially oppositional and 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 certainly uh, valuably valuably thoughtful uh, educated elite, which doesn't exist anymore. If you want to turn to the universities these days for for dissenting opinion on any subject, you turn in vain. There isn't any. Let's, let's stick an dissent is vital. Just if there's a society without dissent, is 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 a tomb. Couldn't agree more. And and I think there's something to what you're saying. But I think most people, and I want to know why you would perhaps disagree with them. Most people who would agree with that conclusion would say, well, actually, it starts with the media. Rupert Murdoch comes to this country in 1968, buys news of the world, um, buys the Sun. Obviously, gets the Times newspapers. Billionaires own the press in this country. And there's a there's a great quote. Um, by Neil Postman, American media theorist, who says at some point, particularly with the arrival of television, but I think also it goes to the heart of media ownership, at some point the media st stops telling people what to think, not that it should tell them what to think, but even doing that, it stops doing it and it starts telling them what to feel. And and so I wonder, and, and for me that captures so much, but you, you think that's secondary well, I education know, I, I, I do, but I also think there's a, it's more complicated than that. How are you going to have in an advanced and wealthy country any sort of independent media? I mean, I, I think particularly of newspapers, because I grew up in a country where newspapers were still the main form of uh, of the provision of news and opinion. And they, that didn't really end, I don't think, until the 1970s. But you look at people, um, the, the Lord Beaverbrook, um, I, my first contract with the, the Daily Express was with Beaverbrook newspapers. Not a nice person, but can you think of a better arrangement than ownership by maverick, let's say billionaires for the sake of argument, uh, of independent newspapers uh, for making sure that the state does not control uh, the provision circulation of news and opinion, because I can't. I think that actually the system of individual proprietorship is very valuable in doing that, and no one's ever come up with a better way of doing it. It has its faults, but it also has its great, uh, its great safeguards in, as long as there is competition among the media empires. See, I would, I would agree with you in the in the first half of the twentieth century because you do actually have a, a, not just a range of opinions, but a range of ownership models. You know, you have the uh, Daily Herald, you have the Daily Mirror, you have the Manchester Guardian, and then you have you know the, the papers that we'd be familiar with now, which is owned by wealthy people, and they were criticised for owning them as kind of ideological plate things or whatever. But the point is that was only one part of the media environment. I mean, in nineteen forty five, 
The Daily Worker, which is today morning, today's Morning Star, had a circulation twice that of the Financial Times. Well, that's which, not a huge claim, really, is it? Well, it is today. Especially since... It is today. <laughs> it is, you know? No, it isn't. You don't think I mean, so? The Daily, today Worker, the-, the Daily Worker was never particularly important. And, I, and there is a very funny story in Claude Coburn's memoirs, which explains why the Daily Worker sold as many copies as it did, which is a fantastically good racing tips. Well, I'm that sure was, that's there a large part of it. And also, the football system. supplement. I'm told the post-war I, I football supplements know, were very good. If you if you read if you read I Claude uh, and his and Coben's experience of his first few weeks working in the offices of the Daily Worker, it's very funny, and it explains exactly why it was important. Well, you also it's you know, true. I, it's the, the the Daily Worker, the Morning Star. Call it what you will. There's never had okay. The Daily the Daily Herald, Herald had millions of readers. The Daily Mirror did, did so by using exactly the same techniques. As were being used by uh, by the Northcliffe and Beaverbrook Empire. But the ownership was different. I mean, that, that's my point. So to say that the British media has always been as it is today, that's not accurate. The idea that, you know, several billionaires own 60, 70% of news market share is new. Didn't I, wasn't, there, wasn't there a Lord Southwood in the history of the Daily Herald? It's a long time since I've read Francis Williams, but I think, I think there were definitely press lords in the Daily Herald somewhere. This is also what I like about interviewing Peter Hitch. You know, you can. Uh, I have my little beer in my bonnet about this. I'm sure you, you read it's a fantastic book. You Francis, can me Francis Williams wrote called "Dangerous Estate," which goes through the whole history of it. Uh, and I, certainly, there was definitely a lord uh, who, who called Lord Southwood who ended up in charge of the Herald. Look it up. You've got the internet there. I haven't got it handy. And what do you think of all the strikes at the moment? You know, you just said that in the 70s it was so much worse. Well, I think uh, they, there is a similarity in that I think probably the Vietnam War and the other events had caused a great wave of inflation to spread across the Western world. And the other thing that happened was the Yom Kippur War. And you have a, a parallel in this, the, uh, the, the crazy overreaction to COVID combined with the Ukrainian war. Uh, have had enormous effects on inflation and particularly rising energy prices. Same, again, the same things the Yom Kippur War in 73 led to great rises in energy prices. So everybody is undergoing a pay cut. And at that point, people who have the strength, uh, the influence, the authority or to do anything about it will try and protect themselves against pay cut. And if they're in reasonably strong trade unions with fairly uh, closed recruitment, uh, they will have a better chance of getting somewhere than anywhere else. The, doesn't the, the fascinating difference is, of course, that there is no real private sector of the kind which existed in the 1970s, really, really big uh, private or semi-private companies such as the old British Leyland, uh, which could copy uh, public sector pay rises. So the idea that if you if you make concessions to the public sector, you're then going to have to make concessions to everybody else simply doesn't work. I, looking back on it, it seems to me that there was that, that governments got themselves into terrible messes, uh, basically trying to make water flow uphill. People who can will try and increase their wages when their pay is cut, and people who can't won't. And if you fight them, then you'll get into brawls. And if you get into those brawls, particularly if you pick fights with people such as nurses, you'll end up looking silly. The great Keith Waterhouse, his great summary of, of 1974, Ted Heath went to the country on, the, on asking the question, who governs Britain? And the country replied, not you, matey. And that's, there is this grave danger with conservative governments, particularly, but Labour governments can do it too, of saying, right, we're going to have a fight with the unions to try and turn the public against the unions. And a lot of people can see the logic of why somebody else might want more pay because they might want it themselves. I don't think, I, I, I'm amazed at the way in which people paint themselves into corners over these things. It's why, because so everything that I learned in, as an industrial correspondent centered on one simple thing. 
all disputes end in a compromise. There is always a negotiation. Somebody always gives something. Somebody else always gives something else. And my view is, save the middle part. Don't spend 12 or 14 weeks having stupid squabbles while people suffer in various ways. Get to the compromise to start with. How do you think this is going to end? And I, know there's I don't know. I don't see any. Because there, there is no compromise on the horizon. signs that the government might be waking up to the fact that it isn't doing them any good. In which case, I, 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 the impression I have is that, is that uh, particularly the rail dispute could be settled quite quickly. Uh, but I, I th- the, the, the unions make out a very strong case, which I haven't seen effectively rebutted, which is the government is holding the, the railway employers back on that. And if, if they stop doing it, I go, and why would you, uh, as a government, pick a fight with the most popular and much loved group of people in the country, nurses? I mean, why would you do that? It's just political ineptitude. And I, I, I don't see it from whatever the politics of the government concerned, if it were a government I liked, which is I, I, no such thing exists, or a government I disliked, such as the one we have now. I still say, why are you doing this? Why pick this fight? What was the last government you did like, where you thought, those are my people, even a little bit. I mistakenly uh, accepted the anti-Soviet rhetoric of the Tories. I thought they meant it, whereas in fact I now think they were just sloganising. It wasn't something that really, really troubled them very much, and also wasn't something they made much impact on. So what we're talking, Thatcher post yeah, I think I, I thought when she spoke about that, I thought she she said sensible things which would have been welcomed by people I I thought highly of, such as uh, Václav Havel and uh, Lech Wenzel in, in, in the East. I thought they what they said then, but I don't I don't now looking back on it think that it it actually had very much impact or was very central to what they were worrying about. The way she governed the country, when you look at it, was not conservative at all. You've actually called, I've got the quote here um, from Margaret Thatcher. I think you called uh, her tenure a miserable failure. Yes, it was. And what, she did no conservative thing. And the, the education issue, the one which, which I'm so uh, preoccupied with, was one where she, she, she had, as an education secretary in the 1970s, not so much done as permitted a great deal of harm. And she had many years in office when she could have repaired that, and it was still reparable, and she didn't. That alone should stand as my. Well, she, she did nothing, absolutely nothing, uh, to protect the married family from the, the, the state attacks which had been going on, going on since really since Harold Wilson's government. So when people were saying, you know, she was the greatest conservative prime minister of the twentieth century, obviously, I, I presume you take umbrage at that. Well, she wasn't a conservative; she was a liberal, like Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan was an, was, an, was a New Dealer and a social liberal. And, it, and he's portrayed everywhere as a conservative because of his his um, militancy abroad, supposed. I, th- I have a suspicion the Soviet Union would have collapsed anyway. Mm. You were a correspondent in the. I mean, what an amazing. I mean, I'm sure you hear this all the time, but it is an amazing time to have been first industrial correspondent in the 70s and then go to the Soviet yeah, Union. This is this is the, the, this, this is part of my answer to your question. You asked me why I uniquely do and say certain things. I have been extremely fortunate in the life that I've lived, but also not many people have the combination of experiences that I have. It's and important to say that's that. That's one combination it's unusual to find. And you come from a naval family as well. That also, yes. so, so a question about the Soviet Union. The, the manner of its collapse in the late 80s, early 1990s, I mean, you were there. D- did you sort of have a suspicion that the manner of that collapse 
somewhat chaotic, somewhat disorganized. This is obviously a very proud nation historically. Um, did, did you think it could lead to somebody like Putin 20, 30 years thereafter? I had no idea. I, the, the, the foreign correspondent uh, describes, if he has any sense, he doesn't try to explain. I had no idea during the two and, uh, I don't know, roughly two and a half years I spent in Moscow, I had no idea what was going on. I completely clueless, and I still don't know what was going on. I read other people's accounts, and I think, yeah, that makes sense. It could have been like that. Might have been. Not sure. It was a, it, it was a mystery to me. I, I, I spoke feeble Russian. I can I can bluster in Russian. I can't converse with me. I had relied on translators to read the papers for me. I didn't know intimately anybody in the, in the middle of it. I could just observe and describe, which is what most foreign correspondents do, and it's useful. Just to tell people, and I, for the, the most satisfaction I had in doing it, and the most pleasure I gave to my readers, as far as I could understand, was in describing what life was like and how events appeared to me. But what happened? And I had no idea what I was. Principally, was overjoyed to see the Soviet regime. I hated the Soviet regime. I thought it was completely revolting, uh, and you could see the the way in which it had soured life for so many people. I thought it was fundamentally anti-human. There was an extraordinary film made in 1990 by a man called Stanislav Gaudiukin. I think he's still alive. He was a friend of Solzhenitsyn, and he got special permission to make and show this film, which is called Takzid which means roughly, we can't go on living like this. And it was an honest portrayal of what life was like for ordinary Soviet citizens, uh, desecrated churches, horrible, filthy blocks of flats in which they lived, everything. Uh, dirty and unworkable, nothing functioning properly, uh, a, 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 an empire of sludge. I, uh, there's this, this, uh, I'm told there's this, um, I haven't seen it yet, Adam Curtis uh, film on the BBC, which from, from the descriptions I've heard would probably give you an idea of, of what it was like, very similar to Tajitnesia. I went to see that film with my KGB-provided translator at my elbow in a, in, in a cinema in North Moscow in the summer of 1990. And after, and she was whispering into my ear a translation of everything that's going on. And after a while, I was aware there was another sound. And I thought maybe it's people muttering about her whispering. It wasn't. They were all weeping. Everybody in the cinema was crying. Because for the first time in their lives, the first time in their lives, they had seen the truth officially represented on a, on a state-sponsored cinema screen. And the truth that they all knew but couldn't have uh, was actually being was actually being shown as one of them crying. It was that bad. It was a f and the, the the other great the, the little vignette. I used to try and go for walks around Moscow when the time when 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 I wasn't totally busy. And I remember walking one day into a must have been summer because uh, the mosquitoes bad and a small park in an area of Moscow called Krasnoprosnyska, and in that park was a statue. Uh, of a child, and I looked at it. And it was it was to a, a, the child was called Pavlik Morozov. Do you know the story? No, no. Please enlighten. All right, you, you, you've read nineteen eighty four. You must have yes. read nineteen eighty four. So you remember that the uh, is it Syme, uh, um Winston Smith's neighbour is uh, has children, right? And they and they belong to an organisation called the Spies, right? A world can't have known how accurate he was. What Morozov was, he was a child who had been who denounced his parents to the NKVD had then been murdered by his grandfather and had been elevated into a state of national martyr. So all young pioneers uh, were sang songs about him, learned about him as a hero. This child who had denounced his parents 
for the sake of the motherland and the party. He was a national hero to children. So you, if you, you could look at the Soviet Union and say, well, this is just a place where nothing works, where all the buildings fall down, where the televisions explode, where the cars are a joke, where uh, consumer goods can't be found, where the food is, the food is slop. Uh, it, otherwise, it's just like the West. It's just the West, only poorer and nastier. But it wasn't. It was much, much worse than that. It was a profoundly as say, anti-human state in which children were actively recruited by the state to denounce their parents. And that statue was there until the KGB putsch of August 1991. I went to see what happened to it afterwards. And it vanished. Now, most of the most of the bad statues in Moscow, the statue of Felix Dzerzhinsky, the founder of the of the KGB, uh, was removed from its plinth and placed in a special park where people go and look at it. It's a very fine piece of sculpture, actually. Uh, and but the Morozov thing was considered to be so embarrassing and so bad that I have never been able to find out what happened to it. It just vanished completely. It wasn't. It wasn't kept anywhere or put on display. It's just gone. But what happens next in the nineteen nineties is um, collapsing life expectancy for men. I think the male life expectancy falls to not just for Russia. Should be said for Belarus, Ukraine. It's terrible anyway. You understand? No, not true. But we have the Lancet saying that there are. I think between nineteen ninety-five, you're looking at. This figure, this this term that I don't really like, excess deaths yeah. because of alcohol yeah, know, poisoning know, yeah. and so on and so forth. I mean, uh, so you go from, like you said, the weeping, the collapse of the Soviet yeah. Union. I'm sure tens of millions of people were ecstatic about that. But then it's that disappointment. I, I just wonder what kind of political bromide that is, what kind of consequences that has. And and perhaps in well, retrospect- we I, we hear there are, kind of, I've seen recent discussions about this in which, in which we're all urged, and I haven't gone into this in detail, to compare- uh, the, the the different because American economists got involved in shock treatment of, of uh, post communist economies. Compare what happened in Poland, uh, which I think was under the direction of the same person who was uh, who, who was in charge of seeing the shock treatment in in post communist Russia, and the difference between the two is astonishing. And there is a theory, and I don't I, I'm not informed enough to subscribe to it. You've heard of the Wolfowitz doctrine. No, I've not. I've heard of Wolfowitz. Okay, well, Wolfowitz doctrine dates from the um, mid-1990s. The New York Times exposed it. Uh, what it basically was was a was a, a paper which Wolfowitz, amongst others, had authored. All, all the some neocon project for the New American Century people were in favor of it, saying that no power should ever again be allowed to rise to challenge the United States hegemony, and that the every effort must be made to ensure that Russia was kept down. And well, it was leaked and acknowledged and then was said to have been modified. But as, as far as I know, never been withdrawn or cancelled. And some people believe that it lies behind um, United States policy towards Russia ever since, as opposed to the what I would call the more enlightened policy pursued by people such as George Kennan, who had been the great, who designed the Cold War. And Kennan designed the policy of containment, which eventually brought down the Soviet Union. And at the end of it, he said, rejoice, we now have a democratic revolution in a country where de democracy was destroyed by Lenin in 1918. And here we, at last we have a free Russia. Don't whatever you do, uh, drive it back into tyranny by through idiot, idiotic actions such as NATO expansion. He was ignored. And another totally different policy was pursued. And for whatever reasons, and you can think of many, many reasons in American politics, why uh, why it was, but the policy of NATO expansion, the policy of of shock treatment of, of the Russian economy, devastating to something which is already in a very considerable mess. Uh, but the certainly the effect of it has been 
to, uh, to, to turn Russia into a, a different kind of slum from the one it was before. But I couldn't foresee that. I would have to be incredibly prophetic to foresee that. I actually thought if you'd asked me, and something once or twice we did discuss this, I remember that those of us who were there, what's going to happen to this place? I thought Russia would probably end up as being something like Turkey, halfway between the, 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 the first world and the second world, not by any means wholly democratic, not by any means wholly unfree either, not hugely rich, but not, not poverty-stricken either. And that would have been my guess, but something much worse took place. You've got really heterodox views on on the history of foreign policy making particularly for conservatives so first, first world war second world war have i what are my views what, what heterodox views do i have? so for instance i mean the phony I victory don't think, i don't think i don't think we should ever have entered the first world war for instance i mean that's re- that's more mainstream that's than what you're saying about not, the second world war not heterodox. what i say about the second world war is that um it, it often misrepresented is that uh, we shouldn't have started from where we started from. Uh, I've written a book, The Phony Victory, about this, which doesn't say that Britain should, shouldn't have entered the war, which doesn't denounce Winston Churchill, which doesn't say we should have surrendered to or made peace with the Germans, but says that we entered the war at the wrong moment and under the wrong conditions, mm. uh, and that the myth which has been built on this is uh, it, it hampers serious discussion, uh, both of our own domestic future and of our foreign policy forever. I don't think, I think any of these are what you might describe as heterodox. Well, so, so for instance, I some of the mythology that you tackle in The Phony Victory... Oh, you wrote it? Of course, I've read it twice, Peter. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very few people. I, I don't believe that. I'm always very glad to find. Well, by, by necessity, I don't think, apart from an abusive review in The New Statesman by some knighted professor, I don't think it was ever reviewed in any major publication. People don't know it exists, let alone what it's. Saying. I think it's a very good book. I mean, I, I listened to it first as an audio book, and then I, I read it a couple of times. I'm going to gift it. I think to know a few sort of veterans in my life, and to gift it to them who, who have sort of quite who who think for themselves. And I think, for instance, the the, the myth about um, rearmament. Yes, indeed. You know, I just didn't. I just didn't know a lot of that stuff. You know, and obviously on the left, it's so good to think. Oh yeah, we were the good guys, and. Um, you know, that the conservatives were asleep at the wheel and, you know, Baldwin yeah. and Chamberlain were bloody useless. But then you realise actually Spitfire and Radar is happening under these people. There is breaking yeah, every armament. huge reconstruction of the Navy too. It was not, but what they were, they were, they were rearming for a different war from the one they, they got. So, so, but, so why do so few people, I mean, I, I, I'm not here to sort of start, you know, lionising something like Neville Chamberlain or, or Stanley Baldwin. Not me. But, I, it's not, it wasn't my purpose. Yeah. I don't, I, it, it, absolutely not. But why does our that sort of national mythology around that stuff, why because is it? it has become, and I, the, 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 officially this country's religion is, is Christianity. Semi-officially it's National Health Service. But in reality, often it's we won the war. And the chant of the football crowd, two world wars and one world cup and songs praising Bomber Harris if the Germans are playing. This is, we believe, we saved the world from Nazism in 1940. And that while there is some element of important truth in this, it's, it doesn't fully explain what happens. Also, whenever I argue with anybody, for, for instance, about the war in Ukraine, the, they immediately attempt to make a parallel between the war in Ukraine with 1940 and the Nazis. The enemy is always Hitler. The person advocating more and more war is always Churchill. And the person who says, hang on a minute, are you sure this is right, is always Neville Chamberlain. 
It's, and it, the world isn't like that. The, the crisis of 1938-40 is fascinating, complicated, but it, isn't, it, it hasn't been replicated since. There's nothing like it going on now. And part of the, the you remember one one part of the book is, is this, this guy is another Hitler. All the people who have been portrayed while while we prepare to go to war with them as being new Hitlers, right down to General Noriega of Panama, a man so unlike Hitler that it's hard to know where to begin. But every time it's the same thing. It's it's Hitler against Saddam Hussein is Hitler, which of course makes uh, Anthony Charles Lyndon Blair into Winston Churchill, well if you like that sort of thing. Mm. I mean, I, it's, 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 a, it's, it's the, the and I, I attempted glancingly, because it's a far bigger subject than the book could have borne, to say, if you have been through a, an impoverishing, damaging war in which your major cities have been bombed, in which your men have gone away to be killed, in which you have been rationed uh, right down to the, to, 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 to the, to, to the skin, uh, in, in which all of life has become grim, miserable, gray, and straightened for six long years. And at the end of it, there's absolutely no material sign that you've won. Then it's kind of useful to be able to say to yourself, yes, but we saved the world. Yeah, and another formulation- My parents' generation had needed to believe that. So it was a salve, really, for the sort of material consequences I wouldn't, no, I, 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 I wouldn't be so impolite. I think it was a perfectly reasonable idea. What did we do all this for? Why did we go through all this? Why did my father slog backwards and forwards between Scarpafler and Murmansk with an inch of steel between him and, and freezing cold water, which would kill him in 10 seconds? Why did he do that? At the end of it, he had to have a reason for having done it. And I don't, I don't blame any of them for having said, right, okay, well, we saved them. Because you know, in, in a very important way, of course, we did. But also in an equally important day, we, couldn't, we, had, we were, by 1940, we were bankrupt. We hadn't got any money, and so you can't, a, a nation can't continue to fight without any money. So we, we we handed on the war to other people who used it for their own purposes. The formulation you have in the book, which was again really clarifying for me, is that you know the the the, the war starts with two, you know, you 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 would do that imperialist powers, sort of Britain and France, um, Chamberlain and um, oh, what's his name, Deladier. Deladier, yeah, sorry. Who has yeah. a very fine bridge named after him in Avignon, by the way, which I walked across once for celebration. The French PM, yeah. yeah. Um, it started by these two great powers from the 19th century, and it's ended by these two 20th century superpowers, i.e. the United States and the USSR. And this transition happened, excuse me, <clears throat> 1940-41. And I just, it was just so clarifying for me because I'd never really thought of it in those terms. And then equally, by extension, this idea that really Britain is... What's the, what's the kindest way to put it? After 1940 and 1941, with the the intervention of the United States, but also uh, with with, um, Hitler's invasion of the USSR, Britain basically becomes a a second-rate actor in this whole thing. And and, and lucky still to be in it at all. And, and, and there it is. Yeah, but that it's the if you go to the the French Army Museum in Paris, they have a copy of this map, the which which they the the propaganda. Nous gagnons parce que nous sommes les plus forts. We 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 will win because we are the stronger. A picture of the world in which the French and British empires are portrayed is enormous, and the German, tiny Germany in the middle, uh, obviously bound to be destroyed by the great. And that was what people thought. No one had a clue. 
in September 1939 that Germany could could invade and destroy France in a few weeks. The, everybody thought France would do what France had done in 1914 and would block the Germans. And the other thing, the policy was based on the assumption that at the very least the Soviet Union would be neutral. Mm -hmm. uh, so that the, the, the immensely important strategy of blockade uh, could be operated again, and Germany could be starved in submission. And, and the, the, the really fascinating thing is that when, in late August of 1939, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact actually negated everything on which the yeah. policy had been based, nobody stopped and thought, maybe we should rethink this. And it was very late. But it, it had, in fact, undermined everything. And it, if, of course, if, if there hadn't been a Molotov and Trump, uh, it, it may well have been that the French and British would have held in the West. It's, it, the number of what ifs in this are huge. But there was. I mean, it's just remarkable to think between September 1939 and the middle of 1941, the extent to which the global geopolitical map changed so mm. quickly. I mean, yeah. it's, just, it's incomprehensible to us. Well, no, it's comprehensible, but it's a surprise. Well, it's incomprehensible in so much as a, it's not congruent with the story that we're told, no. but also it's 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 the end of great European imperialisms, and it happens on the beaches of Dunkirk and in Norway. And people won't believe what they don't want to believe. I mean, there's another fact. Here's a fact: in the in the spring, I think, of 1934, Britain defaulted on a giant loan to the United States, money billions in today's terms, which the United States had lent us to conduct the First World War. And we've never since then paid a penny of principal or a penny of interest. And yet you quite often see distinguished city correspondents writing, Britain has never defaulted on a loan. It's an enormous default. And it's probably at the heart of our relations with the United States ever since. If you say this to people, say, no, no, it's not true. They will actually argue with you. And so I point you to the, to the actual statements. And it, it, it is, it's an undeniable fact. It can be researched and shown to No, no, no. Uh, educated, conscious people, men of affairs. No, we paid it off. They think we did. It's, and it's one of the most crucial facts in modern British history. And those who know it have constantly to fight a battle against those who don't and those who refuse to believe it. Why are we taught such a strange picture about our national history. Well, because as I say, it's history, history as we know, history is, um, is, is, is the law of the tribe, it's the national myth. And I was brought up on a I, 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 less of a myth, I believe, than that of the, the glorious revolution of 1689, which I still regard as a glorious revolution, I have to say, but which was a good deal more sordid and um, of doubtful legitimacy than it was taught to me, but it was a vital part of the British attitude towards ourselves, that we were the country which had, uh, which had more or less pioneered constitutional monarchy and liberty in Europe. And it's true, the, all the French encyclopedists and the French radical left of the 18th century admired Britain for our 1689 revolution and thought that we'd done very well out of it. But I suppose Hard to believe now, but they did. And, but it was a very strong part of the, the view of this country that I was brought. I, I remember those history books in which the words glorious revolution, I remember them being packed up and taken away, but it was too late for me. I'd already learned that version of history. And that's another thing about me. I, there can't be many people like me left who were taught out of those books and who still remember it. But I suppose a big difference is that our official myth slash history of the Second World War inflects foreign policy decisions in the 21st the century. Time. That's the big problem. All the time. Completely. 
and Churchill as well. This idea we've already touched upon him, but you know, a second a second or ancillary myth is this idea of Churchill as this you know godlike statesman who got everything oh, right. Oh, I think Churchill was a man of great brilliance and stature and of enormous courage, uh, and often wrong. Uh, and definitely, I think partly responsible for our foolish involvement in the First World War, but. In May 1940, I do not believe anybody else could have done what he did. And I think it was absolutely vital for the future of civilization that he did it. I, I don't stint on that. You can say anything else about him, which is true. Which and, you do in the book. And it's, and, but he did not cook up the foreign policy mess, which he had to, which he then had to deal with. That was Halifax. Halifax always portrays the pathetic, weedy peacemaker. I mean, one of the people pushing in the spring of 1939 for the Polish guarantee, which led like an escalator directly to war. And so Halifax got his war, and when he got it and it went wrong, he was the first to run for cover. But Churchill makes a lot of decisions. Churchill, Churchill criticised the Polish guarantee. He could see the absurdity of it. But it, it wasn't his, he wasn't in government when this happened. It, it wasn't his responsibility. He inherited when he became prime minister, a mess made by Chamberlain Halifax. How do you feel when people want to sort of, people are trying to remove statues of Churchill or, how does it make you feel, Peter? I don't really, I mean, I, it, it's often the case that I'll oppose it because of the people who are in favour of it. I'm not, I, 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 I'm quite Protestant in my Christianity. I'm, I, I hesitate about, about idolatry and the making of statues. Uh, to human beings, I'm n never entirely sure that it's right. It's a form of worship which is the verges on paganism. This is a huge issue in the Britain of the of the 16th, 17th, and, and 18th centuries, in, in which many a huge amount of statuary was removed from from churches, particularly the Cecil Rhodes statue in Oxford. I, I'm not in favour of keeping it, but I'm against it being removed because of the sort of people who want it to be removed. I love it. But what, so if you agreed- It's a horrible statue, by the way. He looks on it, he looks like a, like a bookmaker. You, 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 you can almost smell the, 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 the cigar. He, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nasty statue. It also contains a, a, an unpleasant sneer in it towards a more interesting statue on the other side of the street. It's fascinating, the history of it. But I, I, I have no love for it. But if it were pulled down, I think it was not that it was a defeat for the right people, but a victory for the wrong people. But I mean, you're, 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 you know, you're a man, you're a Christian, you're a Christian man and you have, you have an ethical sensibility and you, you know what's right and wrong in your heart. So it seems strange to me that you would base an ethical decision on whether or not- It's not an ethical decision. X group. It's not an ethical decision. Is, no? Well, there's nothing ethical about it. Some people don't like statue being uh, displayed and some people, some people do. Uh, very hard to work out who should, ha who should have the, the final say. Uh, I think the world would be a lot less interesting if there were- if there were less sculpture about it. And I live in Oxford. You walk the high street in Oxford. There's a, uh, there's, at the bottom on, more, on, on one end of Magdalen College, there's a, there's a sculpture of a very dead John the Baptist. Uh, a bit further up on the Ruskin School of Art, there's a wonderful uh, sculpture um, of, um, of an owl with a mouse in its beak. Further on, on the front of all souls, there's a sculpture of, of, of a dead person again. Uh, then there's Cecil Rose. Then there's the very historically important sculpture of the Virgin Mary on, on the church of St. Mary the Virgin, which was shot up by the, uh, by, by the Cromwellian army when they marched into Oxford in, I think, 1640s. <sighs> Whichever 1640 it was. Uh, the, whole, the whole street is full of these fascinating historical things. And I love it. I wouldn't want to see any of them go because they enrich 
our history. What about Why the- would you destroy? I don't like this business of trying to wipe out the past, especially if it's embarrassing. The more embarrassing it is, the more it should be kept in being. Well, I suppose the argument is with statues, is that there's an act of veneration, which you sort of implicitly there's agree with. There's a danger of that, yeah. But it, it, it's, you can't really say that about those statues of Victorian generals in London, because nobody knows who they are. <clears throat> and they're, they're covered in, in, in pigeon um, guano. So it's not, it'd be hard to, to, to really call that idolatry. But if you find out who they are and look them up, it's interesting. It's historically uh, educational. And what did you make of the um, Francis Drake School being renamed? Oh, honestly, I mean, if, again, do you think uh, that anybody uh, who you've ever admired doesn't have feet of clay? Uh, you, you're still permitted to admire them for the things that were admirable. Francis Drake, without Francis Drake, who knows what this country would be. I'm a great admirer of the first Queen Elizabeth. I think she was one of the most, one of the cleverest and subtlest and most thoughtful uh, people ever to govern this country. And without Francis Drake, she would have been swept from the throne and replaced by foreign armies. I don't think that would be a good thing. So the fact that Drake had other less attractive characteristics doesn't mean that we shouldn't remember him. And if we do remember him, then fine. If you people want to point out that he had he had a wicked side and did terrible things, that doesn't bother me at all. But to take his name out of history, or to to, to say that the, the most important thing about him was his involvement in slavery, is just a mistake. You don't seem very animated about it, though. So lots of people on what the do you right want me to get, do pound the table. Some people do. It's a very emotional subject for some people on the right well, of I, politics. I, well, it's not for me, as I say. I, I mean, as you can tell, I have no sense of humor, so I obviously have no sense of proportion, but I just don't get this passion about it. But so lots of people are I mean, very I would, passionate I about it. I did come when I lived in the Soviet Union, I did come to hate statues of Lenin because there were so many of them and they were so monotonous. I longed to see them come down. Oh, no, another statue of Lenin. And you can't believe how many of them there were. You know why there were so many? Go on. Because they had had probably 100,000 statues of Stalin. Right. Until he was denounced in 1953. Well, in 1956, he was denounced. And they had to take them all down. And so there were all these plinths. <laughs> they had to make a huge number of statues of Lenin put on the, the vacant plinths. There was one statue of Stalin, or one image of Stalin in Moscow when I was there, which was on his actual grave behind Lenin's tomb. You had to go into Lenin's tomb and come out the back before you could see it. And there was another, there was a relief of him on the main street in, in Tbilisi in Georgia, in Rastavelli Avenue, which amazingly someone had managed to hit uh, from standing below, what, 100 feet below, managed to hit with a blob of white paint, so it was, it was defaced. And a statue of him was permitted in his um, in his birthplace in Gori, also in Georgia. Otherwise, there were no statues of Stalin at all. So you're not like Michael Hesseltine? There must have been the most tremendous frenzy of destruction. You're not like Michael Heseltine. You wouldn't fancy a statue of sort of Lenin in your back garden or... Not particularly, no. no. I mean, but the acknowledgement that these things exist just doesn't seem to me. I, I, I do possess somewhere a, I don't splay it, but I've, I've got it because I think it's important, a, um, a, a relief plaque of Stalin, which I found in a, in a market. And I bought it, but because it was cheap and also because it was so rare, I thought people need to know these things existed. 
but I never put it up in a public place where people thought it might mean I was a Stalinist. Let's get some more domestic concerns. Um, why do you have such a big problem with divorce? I don't have a big problem with divorce. You, you sort of you you say you see it as the sort of cornerstone of everything that's gone well, wrong. I think I think that the if you've read the phony victory, have you read the abolition of Britain? I have. Well, then you'll know that I regard the married family as being the principal fortress of, of human freedom in society, and also the principal rival to the state. And the form of divorce, which was agreed upon by the Labour government in 68-69, the Divorce Law Reform Act, uh, was, it seems to me, a grave mistake. It made divorce too easy. And previously, some might argue it been too difficult. I'm not saying I'm not a divorce absolutist. I don't. Uh, it's if you are, if you are of my religious persuasion, you're debarred from doing it. But it doesn't mean that you in a position to say other people can't do it. If you make it too easy, then people will resort to it too quickly. And I think that's what we did in '68, '69, and the damage that that did, uh, to particularly to children, was colossal. And I think that any seriously conservative government since then should have re-examined it to say, well, perhaps we could make it a little harder. I mean, for instance, as far as I can see, there's no distinction if you apply for a divorce. I mean, I know the law has changed again recently uh, between those who have and who do not have children. Well, isn't that ridiculous? If people don't have children, then if they decide to divorce, it really isn't anybody's business but their own. But as soon as you have children, it's the business of the children. Shouldn't the be? Shouldn't the law, in some way, say, well, in that case, it might be some uh, some more consideration before we allow this home to break up? But what would that look like? I you don't would, know. You're sort of casting asked, votes, the I'm child, asked, or no? No, you can't do that. <laughs> no, it's the law has to act. I mean, the, the law constantly claims to be acting in, in, in the interest of the child. Ever since the Children Act of '89, the, the law ceaselessly claims to act in the interest of the child when often it's actually acting in the interest of the state. But it doesn't take a huge amount of imagination. I'm not a lawyer, so I, I and it's never arisen anyone's asked me to draw up a provision, but I don't think it would be beyond the wit of man uh, to come up with a divorce law which made it harder to get divorced if you had young children than if you didn't. So, so for instance... In just, for, just for example, I think it, the increase in divorce in the period after the passage of, of, that, of, of that law was huge. And then what happened next was uh, there were quite a lot of remarriages, uh, many of which also ended in divorce. And then there was a growing number of people who simply couldn't see any good reason to get married at all. So the institution of marriage was, was deeply wounded. And, the, uh, and so the chances of a child being brought up in a stable family uh, for that child's entire childhood and teenage years diminished very sharply. I think a lot of the a lot of the problems in our society follow from that. And it, it, people, it, it, I, we used to do uh, on my first newspaper. One of the jobs that came up was to go and talk to people who'd come to their golden weddings. It's quite common in seventy three, seventy four, when I was doing that. Uh, a lot of people had made it to fifty years of marriage. And they, it was it, it was an, it was an office joke. You'd send the newest reporter out to do it, and wait for him to come back and say, "What did they say? What did they say was the secret of a long and happy marriage?" And he would always say, "Well, they both said give and take, because they always did. They always said, mm. which is actually absolutely true." Uh, but the, people decided they weren't going to do that anymore after the divorce law reform act. 
But some of the things you talk about it in the stopped to change society. It was it was a revolutionary move. The other More than the pill. Was, well, the, the, the concept of pill was, and this is the, the, the fascinating thing about the concept of pill, it was a, it was a deliberate recruitment of medical science uh, to change the whole nature of, uh, of, of pregnancy and to, and, and to change basically the position of women in society. That's what it was. It wasn't just an accidental discovery which was exploited. It followed a d deliberate desire by certain people who were opposed to the, the, the former arrangement between men and women to, to change it utterly. But Margaret... Um, oh, crikey, I haven't... I, the I, lady I, who... I, the, you the, didn't tell me it was going to be an exam. Margaret, I'm going to say a name which is inaccurate, but basically it was it was viewed as part of a sort of gender liberation agenda, which was yes, actually empower very, women very to... Very much so. She was own the reproductive person process. who wanted to change the world, and she did so. And I think a lot of people don't realise this. And if well, they did, I think it might change their attitude towards it. I, 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 it's... It's an extraordinary thing uh, to, uh, to to have done. There's no point. It's un, it's, it, 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 no one can go back on it now that it's happened. Well, that's but again, it's, it was a revolutionary act. As the Divorce Law Reform Act was a revolutionary act. The, the destruction of the grammar schools was a revolutionary act. That's why I, I, the, 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 that's what I say I write about. I write about the British moral and cultural revolution, an enormous upheaval. In, and it reflected in many other parts of the Western world, which has completely changed society since my own childhood. So, so which what, I was complacent about when it was going on and largely unaware of. I simply mm -hmm. couldn't couldn't see what was going on. And then as it as it as it came into focus, I realized that something really huge had happened. And a lot of it seemed to me to be mistaken on its own terms. It hasn't made society happier. Well, I'm sort of something of a technological determinist. I'm not, I'm not a technological terms, but I sort of tend towards that. So I would say the pill is this transformational thing, absolutely. But the, the, the divorce and the marriage stuff is almost like an after effect. You know? they're, they're, I'm a little bit more of a Marxist here. So I would say the technology in that instance led the, the social relations a little bit, but you well, don't this think is so. Straight, sort of straightforward, good old crude materialism. Uh, somewhat. Yeah, I wouldn't well, say it's entirely well, well, causal. Well, enjoy yourself. I mean, I don't think life is ever really quite like that. No, no, I'm saying... I, no. I'm saying if there's a sort of if we there's an ordinal ranking, I would say we're clearly the purely because it's transnational for one thing. We see it across you know across borders, across cultures, completely shifts gender relations. Whereas we're just talking about the United Kingdom or the, even the English and Welsh. Well, context. No, all these things happen in other countries in, 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 in more or less in step, and the 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 divorce changes in the United States uh, also took place about the same time. Of course, the abortion law reforms also came about at the same time. Whereas you look at the uh, countries such as the Soviet Union, the uh, abortion law had been, I mean, it had gone backwards and forwards under Stalin because of the need to, 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 uh, to have lots of soldiers to fight in the coming war. But post-war Soviet policy on abortion at one stage meant that there were more abortions than live births. So for, I'll go, let me give you an example of, of my personal... It's the land of Pavlik Morozov. I'll give you my um, my biography, and then you can sort of you can uh, a bit of sort of moral philosophy. So my mum was married; she was a Catholic. They divorced because they couldn't have children. Right, right. This is almost like universities and moral philosophy test here, right? They divorced because they couldn't have children. She didn't have such a problem with the divorce. She knew she couldn't be remarried right. as a Catholic. She then proceeds to meet my father. She can't get married because she's a Catholic. She also doesn't think she can have children. So that's, you know, they carry on. After several years, they do have a child, quite accidentally, me. Now, I think if, if you were there, if the Father Peter Hitchens, the Catholic Church, was talking to my mother in 1983 or four, 
um, was saying to her, well, look, you're going to have this child. You need to be married. I think that would have been an impetus for her to have an abortion. Whereas if you said, look, you're going to raise this child, you'll somehow make it work. The father wants to be in his life yet. I've known my father all my life. It's been a very active role. Um, make the best of it, you know, and I, I, I'm sure things will, will work out. I think that would have been a more, more appealing proposition to her than marry this person who actually otherwise you wouldn't want to marry. Where, what's the Hitchens take on that? I don't have one. I, moral, moral, moral decisions are for individuals who take them. All I want to do is to create circumstances in which it's easier to take good decisions than bad ones. But never, I don't strive for perfection. Everything will have the most terrible anomalies and dangers in it. I just think preferably by far is a, is a legal system which upholds a moral system which impels people towards the good rather than the bad. So, but something like abortion... Most people would say that's quite a, that's a liberating thing because they have ownership over their body. Well, and somebody else's body. Yeah. This well, I mean, I mean, after a certain period of time, they would no, say no, there's no period of time. You can't you can't find one. It's not. It's, so it's a, that, 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 that is a that is an autonomous individual at inception. Yeah. Why? No. Well, why not? Uh, when, what other what other objective point can you come up with? Where, where well, the one we have at the moment, which is its ability it's to not objective. Well, no, the ability to exist outside of the womb, for instance, is the one we have at the moment, right? 28 weeks or whatever it is. Well, that moves from, from place to place and from time to time. That seems a reasonable It seems a reasonable one. I agree with you. Yeah, it seems, it seems a reasonable one. Yeah, but it doesn't work because, as I say, it shifts. So it's, and in any case, it's perfectly clear, uh, as any anybody who's conducted it, have you seen Dr. Levitano's uh, little lecture to, I think, the Congressional Committee? No. It's fascinating. It's not, it's not a horror film. Uh, the only thing he produces is the instrument that he actually used for many years as a professional abortionist, with which he did the job. And he describes what what you get out when you go in there very early on, long before the baby is viable. And you'll have to decide once you've seen it whether you think that babies at that age are babies or or not. I recommend it to anybody. It's it's very powerful, but precisely because it's it's so un uh, unpropagandist. Doctor Levitano. But a fetus at say four or five weeks is the size of a is the size of a sesame seed. So what does the size matter? What's the size? Well, you just what's, you what's were just si what's the size of you were just a, making an appeal to a visual, visual, visual no, not, that would have been no, quite. No, it's not visual. I, it's not visual. It's just I think it's very hard for anybody to deny that the that what is being destroyed is is, is a human being. I find it impossible. Well, let's okay. Let's take a step back. I mean, I I think I don't know I, what your familiarity with premature babies is either. Not uh, premature. No, I haven't got any familiarity with it now. No, it's, it's extraordinary. I, children walk the earth now who 30 years ago would have been judged as unviable. Mm. So what if you have, the, what if you have the, the sort of ethical position, which is an abortion is a tragedy, but if you're sort of taking a utilitarian perspective, which I'm, for, I'm sure you find <clears throat> very unsavory or un unsatisfying, um, that is a tragedy, but it's more of a tragedy for the mother not to be able to live their life as they see fit. Yes, but you're 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 leaving out of this this the the, the obvious thing, which is that, that I would say that it, there is never going to be a case when the, the adoption of an unwanted baby isn't better than than the killing it. You don't mothers don't have to have to raise babies they they don't want to. There are other ways of, of dealing with the problem. The counter argument is it's very easy for a man to say that. It may be. I, mean, I don't. It's, I mean, if you were a woman saying that, I don't care whether it's easy or difficult. It is undeniably true. You can't. You, you can't. A, a woman could say it as easily as I could, possibly more so. It's true. 
why would killing the baby be better than, 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 than handing the baby to somebody who wanted to raise it? Why would it be? Let's go to another... Um... Oh, I see. Right. So that's that one. No, no, no. We're going to no, capital no, you punishment. Can, you can't answer it. That's right. No, no. So no, let's think. Okay. Okay. Fine. So um, I suppose the argument would be... If you had my late brother here, by the way, you'd have had very much the same argument with him as you're having with me. He felt much the same. My, my view would be that... It's not a universal left-wing view that abortion is a terrific thing. No, I don't think so. I, think, I, I personally think the loss of life is a tragedy, but I think it's a great tragedy for the woman not to have bodily autonomy. That would be, I mean, it's two bad things, right? Well, that's a ridiculous thing to say. Why, I mean, why it's, it's, is it tra- ridiculous? Tragedy versus bodily autonomy. What is this bodily autonomy? It's not her own body. It's somebody else's body. But it is her body because it's her body that's no, going to no, have to sustain the, the, child, the fetus for nine months. The child is not her body. It's not a fetus. It's a baby. You use the word fetus. I mean, I don't suppose you use Latin in much of your discourse. You use the word fetus to dehumanize the baby, if you use the word baby, you instantly see that what you're saying is trying. No, I try to be intellectually honest, but I genuinely don't think that the embryo at four weeks is a baby. No. No, I, don't, I genuinely don't think that. And do I'm not, it's, it's not a word game. Do you think it's human? Of course it's human. Okay, so it's human. It's, it has the potential to be human, No, it doesn't have the potential to be human. It is human. It is already human. It contains all the elements which will be through it all the way through, through its life to death. It is the same thing. What's, what's your position on something like animal testing against primates i'm very 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 skeptical about its value i think it's okay. i think it's i think it's um cs lewis was totally against it uh and probably rightly because i would be i'd find it very strange if somebody said i oppose abortion but it's okay to inflict incredible suffering yeah, on I, another primate well, you're right which of course many you know many you're right i think i mean i don't i i'm you know, I, I i haven't ever gone into this deeply enough to, to reach a conclusion, but I sense that if I did, I would end up being completely against it. I find it very disturbing. Capital punishment was the next one, Peter. Yeah. I wasn't trying to avoid the hard subjects. No, 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 let's have it. You're pro-capital punishment. I'm in favour of it under very strict circumstances and for, and for very limited reasons. Such as? Well, I'm in favour of it for the... For the, for the um, Deterrent punishment of, of heinous murders after a, um, a a fair trial in which the presumption of innocence, an independent jury, and the freedom of the press were all available. So for me, I think the killer argument. So for, that means every uh, execution in China, for instance, is wrong. Yeah. Or Vietnam. The killer argument against capital punishment for me is that you make mistakes. There are miscarriages of justice, yes, and you argument. can't bring these people back. I know this argument, but then we, I think every three years, we release two people who have committed murders uh, and have been given life sentences, and they kill somebody. You can't bring them back. True. In the and US, also, the in the US, thing, a miscarriage you, of justice is a huge thing. If you maintain armed forces, then, or indeed an armed police force, as we do, they will kill innocent people. Are you against maintaining armed forces? Or police for, or or arming the police uh, yes. on, on the grounds that they might one day kill somebody innocent, even though you think I don't that, think regular police should be armed. Think in general, the, the army. You think the army should be armed? No, clearly, of course they should. I don't well, think the regular said, police. Well, if you arm the army and the air, and particularly these days the air force with the sort of things we arm them with, uh, then they will kill people, and some of the people they kill will unquestionably be innocent. It's it's in the nature of warfare. And for instance, the recent Libyan war, uh, my good friend Martin Fletcher reported from the scenes of horrible. Uh, killings where uh, either it wasn't clear which um, which of the 
of the Democratic Free Air Forces had done it, but horrible scenes of, of, of the bodies of small children torn to pieces and scattered over the, over the, over the ground. Uh, and this was obviously not done intentionally. The pilots didn't launch their weapons to tear children to pieces, but that's what they did. Uh, so do you say, right, we can't have an air force because that may one day happen? The whole point of Did a you say that? No, 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 but the, the, point, the point of a legal system is the no, no, execution no, 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 of justice, no, 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 no. whereas war we acknowledge the has the all these the nasty the accompaniments. The point of the point the point of of a of of, uh, of maintaining defences is to deter uh, is to deter aggression, violent aggression uh, against your country. The point of capital punishment is to deter violent aggression by individuals against other individuals. They have almost exactly the same end in the civilized country. If you can't tolerate the one, I don't. The thing, the other. If you want to go wider than this, uh, do you think, uh, given the fact that I, I know the figures are down now um, since so many pedestrians have been forced off the road, but do you think that the thousands of deaths each year caused by our national transport policy of encouraging individual ownership of motor cars uh, is is justified or proportionate? I personally don't. I think that's a tragedy, and I think it's the adoption of the car it's in the 20th complete, century is a huge mistake. It's not a tragedy. It's completely <laughs> predictable. The people who foster that policy know perfectly well from decades of statistical study that as long as it goes on, thousands of people, many of them small children, will die each year. Sure, I think we should get as many cars off the road as possible. I agree no, with that. No, but do you think you should ban cars? you think you should ban private cars? Totally. I think there's a really strong argument for it. But would you? If in a municipal context in a certain city, no, yeah, no, a national no, 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 ban no, no. I think would, would be silly. Okay, well, so you won't. So you don't have a principle that <laughs> that a policy that whose 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 results you think are ultimately benevolent should be uh, should sh 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 should be cancelled because an innocent person might die. But isn't the legal? It isn't, it isn't genuinely your position. The... No, you, no, sorry, that isn't genuinely your position. You're prepared to accept innocent deaths as a consequence of policies of which you approve. I think that's, We've established that. That's fair. No, that's We've fair. We've established that. Peter, so if, what, so <coughs> why do you accept capital punishment from this rule? The, if I can establish to you <coughs> that capital punishment of, of, the, of the sort which I, which I very mo modestly and carefully have, I would. I think in almost any circumstance in, in modern Britain, I'd be against it. I'd say I don't believe that that our, our courts, as currently constituted, can handle it. But if that if that would happen, if but it, what I'm saying is, it's not an argument. It's not the slam dunk argument against capital punishment that those who use it think it is. If you really, really believed that you couldn't tolerate any innocent deaths as a result of <clears throat> as a result of a policy which you thought was otherwise benevolent or useful or aided civilization, then you would have to say no, no army, no air force, no navy, uh, no no armed police officers, and no motor cars. You'd have to say that. I'm but sure many you, people you do would say, not that. say that. No, they wouldn't because they could see the proportion. Apart from the, the, the pro, pro, proportion between one and the other but the difference was is, ridiculous, so they won't do it. But the difference is, Peter, with the legal system, it's 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 raison d'etre is about the execution of justice, it's about just outcomes. We have a transport system to get people from A to B, and you're right to say that there's a negative externality of 50,000 people die a year because of air pollution. But, but there are the point of a justice system... There are undoubtedly circumstances in which capital punishment is just. Do you think it was wrong for the Israeli state to execute Adolf Eichmann? I mean, I would only really comment on my own, my own country personally, but I... I well, do you? I mean, it's a simple case. No, I think... Well, I think, I think, do you think, do, do, I think do, more do, crimes... Have you, have, you, have you lost a second sleep over the fact that Adolf Eichmann was executed? I think war crimes... Is, I do think war no, crimes are a separate category. It was not just a war crime. It was, it was mass murder. Well, I'm, I'm saying that... 
crimes which happened. I don't think Eichmann ever fought in a war at all in his life. He was just a bureaucrat. No, no, but I'm saying people to their deaths. The Nuremberg trials fell under. I'm not talking about Nuremberg. Nuremberg is more complicated. um, But I'm I'm saying here is an individual case: Adolf Eichmann, kidnapped by the Israeli state, taken back, tried, and executed. Do you have any trouble with that? Really, truly, I, I don't have any trouble with that. I think, but I think the idea of extrajudicial so, killings is probably yeah, unwise. You've accepted in that case, it, it wasn't particularly extrajudicial. No, I'm just saying you're saying a kidnapping and killing of somebody. They did have a trial. The evidence was presented. He was given the, the freedom to defend himself. And anyway, he was. There wasn't any question that he was guilty. Uh, if you've, you've, you've answered, you've answered the question. You are prepared to accept that under some circumstances, the execution of heinous murderers serves justice. So, where do you draw that line? Does the deterrent argument work? Because obviously it's one argument. Does it work given what we see from the United States? Well, here's, which is a, a f- here's a book of mine you haven't read. Go on. Uh, it's, it's called The Brief History of Crime. Okay, I need to read it. And you do. It's only available in hardback because I, I took this chapter out because it was just making it impossible to get the rest of the message across. But it discusses this issue. And there were two points. Uh, I don't know how much you know about the, the great Royal Commission on Capital Punishment in 1948, I think it was. Uh, but the problem that it identified was that when capital punishment was, had been abolished in any country, it was generally abolished after a long period of suspension and a long period of discussion during which it was less and less applied. So there was no moment, this is midnight uh, on one day and, and, and dawn on the next, where capital punishment ceased and people stopped behaving in the way they had before. Which makes it very difficult to say, oh, well, if once you get rid of capital punishment, the deterrent effect is reduced. Uh, I spoke to a guy, again, I, I, haven't, I didn't expect this to come up, uh, who did a lot of work on armed crime in this country. And there were two periods after the Second World War during which capital punishment was suspended. One was during the attempt to, um, to abolish it in, in 48, in which, by the way, several members of the Labour cabinet voted to retain it which would never happen now. And the other was in 56 when the, 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 the law on capital punishment was severely reviewed and it was made much less, uh, much less common. And during the parliamentary debates on both occasions, the judges agreed that they would suspend it. They wouldn't sentence anyone to death. And they didn't. A fascinating thing is the amount of armed crime, either the use of, of, of knives or, or firearms, during both those periods of suspension rose. And when the period of suspension ended, the amount of armed crime went down again. But so that is the, the, there's another very important point here. The, it, it's very difficult to measure uh, the, the number of murders in a society because they tend to be measured by criminal justice systems as homicides, many different sorts of homicide. Uh, but and, and so the different classifications of homicide. And again, in in in, um, in the, in a brief history of crime, some subsequent uh, writings I've done, I've, I've made this point. Uh, what you can see, uh, and this is absolutely fascinating, is that since the end of, of, of capital punishment in this country, the number of certain types of offences, att- attempted murder and um, and a particular form of grievous wounding, I can't, the title of it slips my mind at the moment, have gone up immensely. And had it not been for the immense improvement in trauma treatment in our casualty departments of our hospitals in that period, a very large number of those people would have died. So the amount of violence, particularly violence using knives and other lethal means, has gone up enormously. But people have survived not because 
they've um, the, the wounding has not been serious, but because the doctors are so much better. And if you took away that, and if you if you went back to the doctors of pre nineteen sixty five and the hospitals of pre nineteen sixty five, we would have a homicide rate in this country of quite appalling proportions. So there is a strong statistical point that a certain type of murder. And this is what is called in the trade stranger murder. They say murders generally undertaken to destroy a witness, a witness to a theft, a witness to a rape. Uh, this sort of murder rises where there is no capital punishment because, and this is a point going right the way back to Montesquieu and the spirit of the laws, if you don't distinguish between other crimes and murder, uh, then people will murder to cover up the evidence of the other crimes. Yeah, I, do, I only meant, I, I can't, this isn't, it's all right, this isn't a subject I particularly, I, I, don't, I don't stand up and say, let's bring back the rope because I, I, I don't want, I, I don't actually think that in modern Britain, you can rely on, for goodness sake, majority verdicts, a bench of judges who seem to me to be more feeble than any we've had since the 18th century, and a, 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 a huge reduction in the amount of coverage of trials by the, by the media. I don't think you could do it. But on the simple question of, is it possible to have, is it possible for a civilized person to uh, support capital punishment under certain circumstances? I think the facts and the logic say, yes, it is. It's, one, it's clearly a variable because you look at the countries in the world with the lowest homicide rate. I mean, Japan's a great example, which they still have capital punishment, but very, very, very rarely use it. But then the counter argument is the United States. Well, they very, very rarely use it. Most, I know, for instance, Louisiana officially has the death penalty, but I think you'd have to go back about fifteen years now to the last. No, time. No, but they, they do. I mean, they do. Of all the sort of the major Western countries, you know, set the number again. I haven't the figures with me. But if, me if, so I, if I know this is going to be a capital, I'd, have, me, a, me, I'd have them. Here. Let me throw I some more. I can tell you, if you set the number of executions for first degree murder in the United States, even in the states which officially have the death penalty, against the number of murders. The proportion of those convicted of murder and those, well, who, are actually, and those who are actually executed. No, hence doesn't no, work. no, no. The proportion, the proportion. <laughs> you're missing. You're, 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 you're jumping to a conclusion not justified by what I'm about to say. What I'm saying is that a tiny proportion of convicted murders are actually executed. It is a perfectly reasonable chance for anyone to assume in the United States, even in a death penalty state, that if they commit a murder, they will not be executed. The, the capital punishment in the United States is a political fiction kept going by, uh, by, by, um, by politically noisy uh, state politicians who want to look tough on crime when they're not being. I mean, it has no real existence. The big, the big variable in terms of homicide rates that we can see, if we're looking at statistical correlations, is, is equality. So somewhere like Japan or Norway have very low rates of homicide, I mean, completely different cultures. Um, and that's because of low levels of economic inequality, a, going, a sense so of social we're, we're cohesion. sociology here. I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm not doing that uh, because it's not, we could, a rabbit hole would, 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 would be like the M6 compared with the, the entanglement we got ourselves into. We started down this line. I'm making very simple points about principle and I'm sticking to it. But I, I mean, I wanted—I was asking the question because it's again, it's such a rare view, so it's good to pri prize it open a little bit. Um, Prince Harry, we're recording this. Everybody's talking about Prince Harry and his uh, his new book, Spare. Mm, yeah. Have you have you encountered the book? Have you were you in the queues to buy it early on Monday morning? No, um, I, I, I'd heard of forcible feeding and the suffragettes, but it's only in the past couple of weeks that I've come across forcible reading. We've all been compelled 
we've all been compelled to uh, to read Harry's book, or rather the book produced by Harry and his able assistant. Uh, and I know as much of this as I really want to know, thanks also. What do you make of it as a social well, I'm phenomenon? Not, I'm, not a, I'm, not, I'm a monarchist, but not a royalist. Uh, I believe there should be a constitutional monarchy. My ideal constitutional monarchy would be one in which there was no monarch, which is more or less the way they manage it in Australia and Canada, where you have a, you, you don't have a president, uh, you don't have an elected uh, or, or popular head of state, and the and politicians are kept out of all the trappings of power: the the, the horse-drawn carriage, the uniform, the 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 armed guard flashing their sabers. They don't have any of that because then they shouldn't be allowed near it. It's like the monarchy. It's like the king on the chessboard. He can't do much. But he prevents anybody else from occupying his square. That's the only sort of monarchy I want, uh, and I, I just think that it's very difficult in the 21st century, in the post-Beatles century, uh, for a royal family to bring up children who even begin to understand the nature and seriousness of the task they're being asked to perform. So, do you think the institution has no no future? Do you think it's too out of step with no, the I national culture? No, I fear it has no future. I would like it to have a future. Uh, but I don't. I think that all this is the is the is the overture to the um, to the end of it. I think people it becomes once it becomes a joke, the most fatal thing to happen to any political person or movement is for it to be laughed at. So once that's happened, you've had it. And that's what's happening to the Windsor. I think it may well be, and some of the stuff that's going on in American talk shows this week, for instance, it just undermines the remaining. The, the, the supposed magic, dignity, yeah. force, and power. How can it be sustained when the royal family has, in the midst of it, a, such an effective enemy uh, who has a guaranteed ticket onto every television screen in the world? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's in danger of becoming incredibly trivial, which is just the opposite of majesty. I, but I think people will be sorry when it's gone. But I, know, I, don't, know, I don't know how to save it. See, I'm not a big fan of presidencies either, so uh, it's a, it's well, a tough one. Well, they're monarchs, and as a result, they often have more power than monarchs. And the, the American president is basically George III, uh, elected um, by billionaires. It seems to me to be a bad and worrying combination. What would you watch? So your ideal system would be the British system? I like system? a parliamentary system. I, I think it, it's... Trevor Doge? You know, no, an elected like, monarch. I, no, I like a parliamentary system. I think that the that the that there's an elected adversarial parliament to which ministers are responsible and to which they have to give answers. And where there is an effective, genuine opposition, is the best form of constitutional government devised. Who was the last honest prime minister? I have no idea. How would I find out? Well, it, I don't know. In, I'm, in not sure. I'm not sure. It's not necessarily. Uh, in, in politics is, 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 is such that it's not necessarily the case that honesty is always a virtue. Okay, let's amend that. Honourable, by the standards of politicians, as in actually their actions are congruent with what they want to achieve and they're I not doubt, doubt, changing with the wind. I doubt whether any of them would, would stand that test if strictly applied. Any politicians? I don't, I don't yearn for the past. If you mistake me for a nostalgist who thinks that at some point in the past we lived in a kind of uh, toy town where everybody's nice, <laughs> you're, you, you've got it wrong. You've listened to the propagandists. I don't have any such I don't think that at all. I, I, do. I remember the 50s. I'm accused of thinking the 50s were a golden age. The 50s were horrible. 
I think that you think... The food in particular was terrible. And it's the whole place stank of cigarette smoke. I can't... The, the idea that I sit yearning to return to the 1950s is so wrong. And I, I don't believe that virtue resides in the past. It's in the present that you have to exercise virtue. They weren't looking for ideal figures in the past about whom you're probably ill-informed. But I think you think that the, the public sphere was more honourable... Why do you think that? ...when you were young. Why do you think that? When, I think well, when have you, I ever said it? Well, you've talked about a coarsening of public debate, and I think the coarsening well, of, a coarsening of public well, that debate, inevitably that, leads to a more does, doesn't doesn't mean it wasn't at all coarse before. No, of course, I but mean, coarse... look at American newspapers in the age of Thomas Jefferson. No, but coarsened public I mean, they debate. Make, they make the, you know, they make they make Twitter look quite genteel. Going back to Neil Postman, Neil Postman says, and I think it's very true, Abraham Lincoln would never have been the president of the United States in an age of television, never. And instead, we get people like Nixon, like Reagan. Yeah. So then we, it no, has I gotten wish, worse. I wish television had never been invented. Do you watch television? I wish, I wish, I wish motor cars had never been invented. Do you watch television? I watch it as if it were a cinema that I could bring home or anything else. I don't. I tend to watch films. I, I'm more, the last thing I watched on television was Dutch Vargo. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you have Netflix? Uh, probably. I mean, I, I have other people in my family who manage I can't even turn the television on anymore. I can turn it off. But I can't turn it on or select a channel. It's beyond me now. Right. Yeah, no, I, I can. I, my my, so, my father's the same. Probably, yes. But I, I wouldn't like to swear to it. Who do you vote for? I haven't voted for so long. Really? Yeah, why would I vote for people I don't like? Do you, do you buy goods you don't want? You might have a, a nice local shop, MP. Do you go to shops and buy things you don't want? Uh, lots of people do, yeah. Well, I don't. So I'm sorry for them, but I don't, I don't vote for people I don't like either. But you must have had a decent local MP, or you really want to keep somebody out, or I didn't vote for I, Andrew Smith, who was my MP in Oxford East, was actually very, um, very good and was very helpful to me personally on, on on one occasion, and I had great regard for him. But he didn't need my vote anyway. When you and he didn't get it, <laughs> and I don't think he cared. I mean, he was he just acted in a civilized fashion because that was what kind of MP he was. When you see the likes of um, Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell on television, yeah. on podcasts, sort of making their prognostications and their manifestos, whether it's about staying in the European Union or Tony Blair on COVID or whatever, does it surprise you? Because you've been in this game a long time. Um, does it surprise you that 20 years after the Iraq war, which led to a million deaths, people like Blair and Campbell are still well, so prominent in public life? Do you ever read Vance Packard's brilliant book on advertising, The Hidden Persuaders? No. It's, it was a big publishing sensation, I think, in the early 60s in, in America. It's, and it's a tremendous, short, gripping book about the dangers of advertising. And the edition that I have ends with a chapter saying, and now uh, this is beginning to happen in politics. And how indescribably awful it's going to be and how right he was. And politics is now, is now part of the advertising industry, isn't it? So nothing surprises me about it. You're not surprised. You're not a little bit surprised. No. Well, the, Alastair no, Campbell's managed no. to reinvent himself as like a mental health activist who no. likes looking at trees. No, no, I've, I've known Alastair for a long time. I don't. He's he's um, he's got a lot of nerve. He's also very clever. Oh, he's a very sharp chap. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. No, that's not I, the case. No, no. I, I admire all these efforts. I have because I, I I have no sense of humour, of course. Otherwise, I find them funny. I mean, that level of reinvention does require a lot yes, of intellect. Isn't it? But no, you've seen it before. People reinvent themselves. I'm trying to remember an example now of people in show business who do it, but look, 
It happens. I mean, there was an outside case that these people would have ended up in prison. There was an outside case. Edge case. There's, we play that out a hundred times. Blair ends up in The Hague once or twice. I don't think And yet so. he's like a socialite. I don't think so. You don't think so? No. Never seemed likely to me. Not likely, but I, I just, I, almost, I don't know. I, I think the extent of the negative press they attracted 20 years ago, it's almost, you would want to, you would want to withdraw well, from public life. That's what you think. I, I don't. I, no, no, I'm I, saying about them, you know, you'd want to withdraw from public life rather than become like an influencer yeah, I, like I, Alistair I, Campbell. I've often recommended that he should, he should become a Trappist monk, the best thing for all of us. But of course, he doesn't think it's the best thing for him. He doesn't want to be a Trappist monk. I mean, I've got a few questions he's left. He's enjoying himself, so he'll carry on doing that. I, how can we stop him? Why do you think he does it? <sighs> I, I, I won't say I, knew, I encountered him before he was famous, and I came to the conclusion that he was not particularly bright. This is Blair. Yeah, and I've never. Yeah, Alistair Campbell is fantastically bright. Alistair Campbell is a is a is a force of nature and very intelligent and smart and cunning and. Uh, uh, th that's possibly why, if uh, he, if he'd ever been placed before the electors, they'd run a mile at the sight of him. Frightening, but they, they, the Labour Party had more sense than to do that. That's why their constitutional revolution in the Orders in Council, which gave him and Jonathan Powell the right to act as if they were ministers, though they hadn't been elected, was so vital to the running of the government. And my own people think it's a joke when I say it. So it's some like some television comedy, but I am genuinely sure that Campbell was the executive prime minister. Uh, for the first years of New Labour, beyond doubt, the idea that Blair could have uh, could could have run a government that effectively is, is absurd. Just telling my anecdote about Blair. This is this is please first, this is first hand. Please, absolutely true. Uh, shortly before the nineteen ninety seven election, I so I knew him slightly. And I he I he was in Oxford to make a speech. And I went to hear it, and then I followed him to the station. In fact, because I was on a bicycle and he was in a car, I got to the station first. He and his entourage they arrive at Oxford station. And the whole entourage then peeled off, leaving the, the then leader of the opposition standing in the middle of Oxford Station Concourse on his own. And I thought I would go up and tease him slightly. But before I could get there, he was mobbed. So in the days before selfies, they all had cameras. They were taking pictures in Greenland. And they clearly weren't English. And I waited politely for this to end. And then they all drifted off. And the, the rest of them were still over at the stand buying their coffee. And he was still standing like a lemon in the middle of the concourse. So I sidled up to him. And by way of opening the conversation, I said, who were they? And he said, they were Brazilians. And then rather defensively, I'm very popular in Brazil. And I said, oh, well, I suppose you'd better start learning Portuguese in that case. And he said, Portuguese? He thought they spoke Brazilian in Brazil. This man, shortly after, actually had the power to launch a new government. And this is the he's gentleman. He's not very bright. He's not very well informed. Of course, he got an education as prime minister, but really and truly, there isn't much there. What he really wanted to be was a rock star. Yeah. Ugly rumors. He wants to be famous. And he and is. loved. And he is. But what else motivates him? I, I just don't know. But I think people should should um, should be careful about attributing complicated intellectual or philosophical motives to him. Two more questions. You've been very patient with us. Very different questions. Out of all the conservative thinkers out there, who impresses you? You've got people like Jordan Peterson or? I'm not. I have written a review of Jordan yes. Peterson's book, which is, I think, it, if I were Jordan Peterson, I wouldn't take it as the act of a friend or ally, um, in which I, I slightly mocked his pretensions as a, as a self-help guru. Uh, I can see his appeal 
it's a desperate and unhappy young man, and that's what I, 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 I'm not myself a thinker. I'm not an intellectual. I am a jogging scribbler. I don't have, I don't, I don't search for thinkers. But who impresses you out there? Impresses me. I'm a newspaper reporter. It's my job not to be impressed. No, you're an, you're an opinion writer, actually. It's your job to have opinions. I mean, but there's some reporting goes on. It's my job. I've been doing this. I've been, uh, I've been a, a, I've been reporting for, for, for daily newspapers now for nearly half a century. It's my job not to be impressed. And every time I fall from being impressed, I regret it. So I'm not going to be impressed by anybody now. From what I've seen, you're, you're, you're not really, you're not really taken by any sort of conservatives out there. No. Which is a, which is a worry for you, surely, because you want to be part of a- Well, it would be a worry for me if I had any political ambitions or aims. No, ambitions, but you are it, a conservative. I long ago, I, 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 I have conservative beliefs, but I'm also a social democrat. But I long ago had abandoned any, uh, any belief that I could influence events. It was only making me unhappy. So I decided not to. Now I just, sorry, I, although I don't have a sense of humor, I just laugh at what's going on. I don't have any engagement. I don't have any purpose, apart from telling the truth, which is a duty in itself under all circumstances. And so far as I- So there are no the authors, truth. theorists, academics, left, right, sense. You go, well, oh, that's an impressive I'm not, person. No, I'm, not, I'm not, as I keep telling you, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I, I'm not a theoretical person. You seem very interested in in the zeitgeist and in, in, in formulations of modern culture. So I would have thought you'd- Yeah, but that's- Where it goes wrong. I mean, I, I, I'd rather watch, I mean, for instance, a few years ago, the man who made, uh, Donald Mark, the man who made The Lives of Others, uh, made uh, a film called Never Look Away. Which is, it's about modern art. It's about Germany. Uh, it also contains a Norse Dickensian uh, conundrum of murder and evil, which is absolutely fascinating. It lasts three hours, and I thought it was one of the best films I'd ever seen. I've never yet met anybody else who agrees with me. Uh, but I, I would enjoy that, and I recommend it to you as well. It's, it's in, in the German title is Werke Erner, also work without author. It's actually a, partly about the real life of a, of a particular German painter, but the the horror in the middle of it is extraordinary. Uh, it, but I, much, but I, I would enjoy that more, far more than reading any book of political theory. I'm fascinated by history, so for instance, I still haven't got over reading Adam Tooze's The Deluge which must be one of the best history books ever written. And I can read, read historians such as H.A.P. Taylor uh, with great pleasure. And currently I'm reading a biography of Elizabeth I. But the idea of reading political theory has never appealed to me. I knew very early on in my university, university career, if you can call it that, uh, that philosophy was not for me, for instance. Well, not philosophy. You mentioned twos. You know, twos is an interesting Sort of person you must follow his work and read his well, views on things. His Substack. No, I, not much. But I just think the deluge is if if he never did anything else, would justify his life on earth. It's just so good, and it's about periods about which I thought I knew, and then I discovered I didn't. Final question: Peter Hitchens is the quintessential Englishman for many people. What's your brand of tea? Uh, Twinings of Firm. Good choice. Thank you so much. Is that, is that a recent? I'm glad you approved. Is that one? A, is that a recent thing? Or, well, uh, in, in, if I had my way in my household, which of course I don't, uh, we would make leaf tea, 
My mother always used to say when tea bags were being introduced, you know, this is just the sweepings of the warehouse floor, don't you? Um, but I can't get anybody else to go through the horrible motions of actually making proper tea. So a psalm, Twining's a psalm is as near as I can get. This isn't a commercial, by the way, to what I would like to drink. My my father's family, who continues, my brother and sister, continues to live in Portsmouth sometime after he died, uh, could make tea, and they used leaves, so dense that it had absolutely no translucency at all. You could have shone a lighthouse beam at it, and it wouldn't have penetrated. That's really the sort of tea I seek, but it's very hard to find. But you have to put full fat milk in it. Sugar? I have been known to put sugar in tea, but basically the test of, of good tea is that you can drink it with that. You shouldn't really have to put sugar in tea or coffee. They should be good enough for that. Peter Hitchens, has been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. It's been a joy. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that interview. It was great fun to record and put together. If you want to see more content like it, why not go to navarramedia.com forward slash support and help us create more content like this by making a one-off payment or by becoming a supporter. From as little as £1 a month, you can help us build a new media for different politics and have the kinds of conversations which you can't find in legacy media. It's a hugely important part of changing politics and changing society because nobody else is going to do this for us. Having these kinds of conversations, these kinds of debates hosting these kinds of individuals and talking to them in ways which simply don't happen on TV, well, that can't pay for itself. So if you want to be a part of that, go to navaramedia.com forward slash support.